can say is that if you can't preach after that, there's something wrong with you, amen? <laughs> That's really true. Hey, uh, we want to welcome our chapel congregation right now, as well as our venue across the way, and then as most of you know, Cactus and Northridge, and then obviously those joining us online. I've uh, been traveling the last couple of weeks, you'll hear more about that in a second here, but I got to tell you, I uh, was dialing in while I was gone, as I told you I would, and uh, you guys were in great hands. Rustin did an amazing job, yeah, with our series. So thank you, Rustin. Uh, really good. And, uh, you know, we're blessed there right now. This is a, a kind of a banner year for our church when it comes to preaching, because this year you might have noticed we are relying less on outside speakers. We'll invite them back in, in future years, but less so this year. And we're grooming or giving a chance, seeing how God is working through them, uh, Rustin and Kevin. And then we have obviously Mike Burdish, who is very seasoned as a preacher from Northridge. And we're seeing what kind of uh, strength God has in our church. And I don't know about you, but I'm deeply encouraged by it. And this summer will be more of that. I'm, I'm back now for six weekends in a row for those of you who are counting. And we'll finish out this series. And then we, I'm going to do a small series on the prodigal son in June. And then I'm gone for a few weeks this summer, not nearly as long as last summer, no sabbatical or anything like that. But during the few weeks that I'm gone this summer, uh, we're going to have Kevin and Rustin do a series that they've developed, you ready for this, called Summer on the Mount. Summer on the Mount. It's a play on words. Some of you don't know the Bible, so I'll explain it to you. Uh, there's a thing called the Sermon on the Mount in the Bible that Jesus did, and they're going to bounce off of that, share some of those scriptures uh, called Summer on the Mount. And again, I, I can't wait to hear that myself. Uh, God has gifted us with anointed uh, younger preachers in our church, and as we focus on the next generation as a church leaving a legacy, uh, we're really doing well there. So we're continuing our series today called 14.6. You'll catch on to what that means in a minute here if you're new. Uh, but I'm going to ask you all to bow with me right now and let's pray and then we'll dive right in. God, our Father, we thank you for the worship that we just had here and, and at our other campuses and venues, uh, a time to focus our minds and soften our hearts and bow our lives before you, which is what worship is, bowing before you. So I pray, God, that as we've done that and continue in that mode, that we might now be receptive to your word. This is a huge passage before us today, Lord, that as we're going to see is paradigm shifting if we will allow it to be. And so speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So almost all of you have heard of Plymouth Rock over in Massachusetts, the rock where it commemorates where the pilgrims in 1620 took the first step in what would become the new world, a first step. All of you have heard of Apollo 11, uh, when in 1969, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon and took that first step onto the moon and then uttered the famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And then closer to home, many of us have commemorated first steps. If you have a kid or a grandkid, you know that you've kind of commemorated that first step that a kid took, or maybe the first step into your new home. If you think about it, there are key milestones in life that are sometimes measured by first steps. Plymouth Rock, Apollo 11, our kids, and what have you. But I gotta tell you, about a week and a half ago, I had an experience that beats them all, truly. And I wanna share it with you. 
As some of you know, the last week and a half, I was leading a, a tour from our church, about 75 people on a journey in, in, in the Middle East and then also in the Near West uh, on the footsteps of the Apostle Paul that after Christianity was started and birthed and Jesus went up into heaven, uh, missionaries started going uh, about 10 hours away from us by airplane across the world. And uh, they started to share Christianity, they started to share Jesus in the outlying areas. And it's important for you to see what we did. This is a map of Europe and then part of Asia. This is from Encyclopedia Britannica. For those of you who are younger, an encyclopedia is a 10-volume or 12-volume set of books in which we get information from, and we used it before we had Google. And so I got this from Encyclopedia Britannica. And you'll notice here, this is really important, that the world is basically divided into what we call the western part of the world and the eastern part of the world. This is important for where we're going. Uh, the eastern part of the world, which just shows a little bit of it here, is Asia, and, and then you have Japan and China and India. It, it's the whole eastern uh, land masses of the world. And then you'll notice here in the green kind of is the dividing line between the western half of the world, Europe, and then what would become obviously the Americas when they were founded and all of that. So you have the east and the west. And the reason that's important is because when Christianity first started, one of the biggest barriers uh, to the spread of Christianity was this east-west divide. And you can see it on the map here. We're gonna, we're gonna kind of focus in on this little bit right here. Perfect, thanks guys. Uh, obviously, uh, Israel is down here on our map and this is called Asia Minor back then. It's modern day Turkey. And you'll notice that it's still part of what we call the Middle East or the Eastern half of the world. But across this little sea here, the Aegean Sea, begins the western part of the world. And that was one of the biggest barriers to the spread of Christianity is who would it be, who would dare to cross the Aegean Sea in order to let these folks know on the other half or the other side about Jesus. And here's how it happened in Acts chapter 16. Let's go to our passage now. Here's when the call came to bring the gospel to the other side. It says they went down to Troas, which is right along the Aegean Sea there in what is modern-day Turkey, again, the eastern half of the world. They went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia, now Macedonia is on the other side of the Aegean Sea in what is now modern-day Greece, a man from Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It goes on to say, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and from there the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So that's how Christianity eventually came to the western half of the world. Don't miss this. A, a few guys led by God decided to brave a sea because they heard a call from God, go to the other side and start preaching the gospel. And that's the tour that I just came off of. 
We looked at the churches that were established by these early missionaries, Paul the Apostle and his gang, and we looked at churches like Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Berea, and even went to Athens where Paul spent some time. We literally walked in his footsteps. And probably one of the most moving things for me, and I didn't expect this, was when we were in northern Greece, and we were in the modern-day city of Kavala, and we were overlooking the city, and here's the picture that I took, because this is what we were looking at. We're overlooking this modern-day city of Kavala, and our guide said, and I wasn't ready for this, this was the city of Neapolis, we just read about that, where Paul and his companions landed and first took that step onto European soil. And what hit me in that moment, gang, is I was watching this, this bay and where Paul came ashore 2,000 years ago is that because Paul and his companions heard God's call way back in Troas and cared about the other side and as a result, took this powerful first step into Europe, you and I have the gospel today. That's what hit me. They said, yeah, amen, you can clap to that. I'm just getting going, so save your clapping. Uh, <laughs> that's what hit me there. Is it, when you understand this east-west divide of the world, that's when the gospel came to what would become the western half of the world, starting there in Macedonia, but eventually Paul would take it to Rome, and then others would pick it up and take the gospel as far as Britain, and then across the ocean to you and I. It all started with that first step onto European soil. And I got to see that as I'm sitting over on this hill. And you know, I thought to myself, you know, Paul could have used the excuse They'd already brought the gospel to Asia Minor, you know, modern-day Turkey, and that he has had his hands full with that. I mean, he could have said, look, I've already started about a half dozen churches, Galatia, Ephesus, the seven churches of Revelation, you know, and, and it's going to take me a lifetime to shepherd these. Let somebody else worry about the western half of the world. But he didn't. He cared enough about the other side, and he took action and as I stood there visualizing he and his three companions coming ashore 2,000 years ago and taking that first step onto European soil, I was moved at my, in my spirit at the power of those who hear the call to take the gospel to places that it has never been and how it just might change the course of history as these steps did. I would posit to you that these steps that we're talking about here right now, those first steps onto European soil, are the greatest first steps in the history of the world. Greater than stepping onto the moon, greater than the pilgrims landing at Pilgrim Rock, greater than your kid's first step, don't mean to be negative to your kids, but let's be honest with it. Life is made up of some great first steps, and these are some awesome ones. Now, we're in a series here at Scottsdale Bible taking a look at some of the wonderful 14-6 passages found in the Bible. Passages that occur in various books of the Bible that have 14 chapters and then six verses in that 14th chapter. And we're looking at these 14-6 passages and noting how they carry very powerful and potent themes and how relevant they are to our lives. And so, so far in this series, we've looked at John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's relevant. 
And then Rustin greatly or aptly walked us through 1 Samuel 14.6 and Ezekiel 14.6, two great themes on faith and then how to deal with idols in our life. And today we come to our fourth 14.6 found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Now, before I read the passage for you, I need to talk with you for a few minutes about the book of Revelation in general. And I'm going to warn you right now, some of you are going to be tempted to daydream over the next five to seven minutes, and I would encourage you not to do that. You have it in you. Can I encourage you right now? You have it in you to pay attention and to care a little bit about some of the intricacies of God's word, because here's the deal. The book of Revelation is hands down the most complicated and even controversial book in the Bible. It is the last book of the Bible written by the Apostle John while in exile on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And the vast majority of the book, as many of you know, has to do with what we call the end times, what's going to happen at the end of time. And what makes this book so incredibly complicated is that it is filled with a tremendous amount of symbolic language about what, of, of what is to come. I read the entire book again on my time away just to refresh myself. And as I read about it, my head was spinning. It talks about angels and trumpets and seals and bulls and plagues and horses. And then there's a beast and a woman and then an intricate description of heaven and then a new Jerusalem. And because of all of this, there's a lot of diversity on how to read the book of Revelation. And here's just what might lose you, but let's not. Let's discipline ourselves right now because this is important for where we're going today. There's actually four legitimate approaches to how to read the book of Revelation, but they're four very different approaches. It's what theologians call the preterist approach, the historicist approach, the idealist approach, and the futurist approach. Let me explain each one very briefly. The preterist approach comes from the Latin that means past. And so this view of the book of Revelation sees much of what is talked about in the book as having already happened in the past, usually by about 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. And so it becomes a book of historical prophecy like many of the Old Testament prophetic books. The late R.C. Sproul was probably the most popular preterist. He was actually a partial preterist because he didn't see everything in Revelation happening by 70 A.D., but a lot of it. And this is one way to read the book of Revelation. But we're just ramping up because this is just one way, not even the most popular way to read Revelation because secondly, you have what is called the historicist approach. The historicist approach. This view sees the descriptions of Revelation, watch this, happening throughout history. That's why it's called the historicist approach. So since the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, Till his second coming, people who take a historicist approach of Revelation argue that the events in Revelation are occurring here on earth in different ages and times, and that's how you need to read this book. Many of the Protestant reformers held this view, and they would link the descriptions found in Revelation to things happening in their day and age, <laughs> the most popular one being, because they were always fighting the Catholics, that the Pope was the Antichrist. 
And so we see a lot of this in history, then you even see it today, where people link things in the book of Revelation to what's happening in the world around them. That's a legitimate way, certainly, to read the book. It's called an historicist uh, approach, and it's one way that people see it. So you got the preterist approach, you got the historicist approach, but we're not done because then you have a third, very different way people read this book called the idealist approach. And like the historicist approach, this view links the descriptions of Revelation throughout history, but watch this. They don't link it with actual events on earth but things happening in the spiritual realm, happening in and around us spiritually as good collides with evil in the heavenly realms. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And so obviously this view takes a highly spiritual or symbolic view of Revelation, seeing its events not happening in real time, but in the spiritual realm. And this was held by some early church fathers like Origen and even St. Augustine held this view as he looked and read the book of Revelation. Many people today who have what we call an amillennial view of the end times would read the book of Revelation through this idealist perspective. So you got the preterist approach that sees it all happening in the past, the historicist approach happening over time, and then the idealist approach happening in the spiritual realms. But then you even have a fourth approach that people read this through that many of you have been exposed to called the futurist approach. This is hands down the most literal of all the views. This sees the descriptions found in the book of Revelation as literally taking place in the future at the end of time. And for those of you who care, most futurists see Revelations chapter 4 through 19, which is the the volume of the whole book, as occurring in a seven-year period of time in the future called the Great Tribulation. It's describing that Great Tribulation and then culminating in the millennial reign of Jesus and then the ushering in of the eternal state. This futurist view has been made popular in the last 100 years by the dispensational school of theology and many modern day people that you've heard of like John MacArthur are proponents of this. And then of course, to add even more complexity, you have a lot of hybrid views that then mix together these things like George Eldon Ladd, who was a professor at Fuller years ago, mixed together the futurist and the idealist approach in what he called classical premillennialism and wrote a lot about how to mix those two together. And, And we have tons of these different eclectic approaches. Here's my question for you. Is your head spinning yet or is it just me? I mean, if you tracked with me just now, and by the way, that's the hardest thing to track with me. The rest is, it's downhill from here. But if you've been tracking with that at all, one of the things that you will agree with me on is that this is a very difficult and complicated book. Someday, I just might muster up enough courage to do a series on the book of Revelation. I did one on the latter half of Daniel a few years ago. And you guys are going to find out where I come down on all of this. Because I certainly have some answers to these things. And they're correct. But I'm not ready yet. (laughs) I'm not ready yet for all the email traffic that I'm going to get. And so we'll let it percolate a little bit longer. But, But in the meantime, here's the really good news for you and me today. And this is going to blow your mind. And I didn't plan this. I was just following these 14.6 passages. But Revelation 14.6, the passage we're going to do a deep dive into right now, watch this. 
is the most simple verse in the most complex book of the Bible. It's going to encourage you. It's the most simple verse in the most complex book of the Bible. In other words, this passage, Revelation 14, 6, is essentially going to hold the same meaning and truth no matter what view of Revelation you might hold. And it's a truth that's going to go back to our discussion a few minutes ago on the power of the gospel for those who have not heard. This idea of taking a first step onto the other side. And for those of us who dare to do that, what a blessing it is. Let me show you what I mean. Here's our verse before us today. Revelation 14, 6. The apostle John is writing. He's getting visions on the island of Patmos of what is to come. And he says this. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. End of the verse. Now, the context here in the book of Revelation is that the seven judgments of God are about to be put or placed on humankind. You can read about them later in Revelation chapter 16. Seven judgments are about to hit all of humanity. And yet before these judgments begin, an angel reminds us here in 14.6 that the gospel is the great hope and the great answer to any coming judgment that God might have for this world. And so whether you see all of this happening in the first century, like the preterist view, or down through the ages, like the historicist view, or in the spiritual realm, like the idealist view, or even in the coming great tribulation, like the futurist view, you would essentially read this verse the same way. Namely, that the gospel of Jesus, this eternal gospel, Notice that description, meaning permanently valid. The eternal gospel is the only great hope for humankind, for all of humankind, every nation, tribe, language, and people. And again, no matter how you view the book of Revelation, this would be true whether you see it happening in the first century or down through history or even in the coming future. It's all the same. The gospel is the eternal gospel designed to go out to the entire or whole world, every nation, tribe, language, and people. Why? Because it's the only hope that we have when it comes to who God is and what he has provided for us when it comes to drawing us to himself. This is the message, gang, of Revelation 14.6, and it's powerful in its ability to change the way that you and I see the world around us, for it challenges us to make the gospel the central rallying cry, not just for us as we huddle together in church worship services for crying out loud, but for the entire world, because we know something that they don't, and that is that God loves them, he has came for them, he has provided a pathway for them, and it all centers around this thing called the gospel. Now, why is this so? I mean, that's a bold thing we're saying here. It's a bold thing Revelation 14, 6 is saying, that there's this eternal gospel that will help anybody and everybody prepare for any judgment that is to come, and that this gospel needs to go out to every tribe, nation, language, tongue on planet Earth. Why would God be so bold as to say that? Here's why. Because as many of us know, the gospel of Jesus is all about God's grace 
in the midst of our messed up lives. Amen? It is. It's God reaching out to us, not us reaching out to him. I haven't earned bachelor's degree in religion. I haven't earned master's degree in divinity, which is basically theology. And I've studied every major world religion and most of the minor ones that humanity has come up with over the years. I've studied Islam. I've studied Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, certainly Christianity. I've studied Swedenborgism. I've studied Taoism. I've studied most of the attempts that man has had, humankind, to try to reach God. And they all have one thing in common. It's fascinating. And most of them even admit this. And that is that this is humanity's attempt to understand God. We invent religions to, from a bottom-up perspective to try to reach God. And that's the way that most religious books, this side of heaven, are written. But here's what's fascinating about what Jesus did. Jesus came along and he essentially said, I'm not interested, interested in any of these religions. I'm not interested in humanity's attempt to understand God. No, I'm God come to you to, to teach you who he is and bring you home to himself. Do you see the difference here? This is why I've said for years that I really don't give a hoot about religion. I, I, I give a hoot about who Jesus is and this gospel that he came to bring because it's a gospel of God taking the initiative and God reaching into our lives to bring us to himself. And how does he do, do this? Well, this is what our world doesn't understand, but you do. And this is what we need to continue to focus on. And that is that the gospel is all about Jesus's forgiveness of our sin through his death on a cross for our sin. You see, sin, as many of us know, is universal to the human condition. I spent the last couple of weeks over in Greece. And, and I don't mean to demean the Greece peop, Greek people at all, but I will tell you this. Here's one thing I learned in Greece. They're just as sinful as we are here in the United States. They struggle with the same problems we do. They have the same temptations we do. They have the same moral failures that we do. They have the same thoughts that we do, even though they're in a completely different culture with a completely different language. And the same could be said of Somalia, Tanzania, Japan, Costa Rica. I mean, we read about all these places in the world. Do you understand that you are, are, are very much linked to them? And you're linked to them because you and they share something, and that is a sinful nature. The Bible makes that really clear. It exists in every culture, every people group, every person on planet Earth. And here's the deal. We're all plagued by it. And here's what we deal with here at our church. We find that sin ruins marriages. It messes up our parenting. It causes business partnerships to fail. It leads to addictions and a myriad of emotional problems. And here's what most Christians don't even, I think, fully understand. But Revelation 14, 6 is screaming this to us. And that is that the gospel is our only hope when it comes to sin. Because it gives us the forgiveness that we need first in order to then repent of our sin and try to better our lives. See, the world's got it backwards. The world says, I want to try to fight sin. They agree that things are fallen and messed up. We're going to fight that with everything in us, this humanity within us. And as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? Because it doesn't work very well. No, Jesus came along and said, until you receive the balm of forgiveness that I offer you, until you realize that your soul is okay with God, even in the midst of your sinfulness, you'll never have the ability to, to, to deal with your sin. So faith 
And Jesus always comes before repentance. The Bible makes that clear. You see, the gospel is about a second chance at life and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. It screams to us. And here's what you guys need to see. It screams to the world that your past does not have to define your present, that your past does not have to define your future. Jesus and only Jesus comes along and he says, I get it. I get you and I know what you need and I came to this earth to give it to you and to offer you forgiveness and hope and love and truth that your soul needs in order to make it through a fallen world. In short, only the gospel of Jesus and only the gospel can connect us with God the Father through the redemption of Jesus the Son and powered by the Spirit who guides us and reveals to us truth. Without the gospel, the Bible makes it clear, we have no hope. I've said this to you guys for a year. The gospel is probably uh, most clearly stated in four words. God, sin, Christ, and you, right? God, sin, Christ, you. God loves you. Sin separates you. Jesus came to remedy that for you, and you have to believe and trust in him. And the point of Revelation 14.6 is that the gospel of Jesus is God's answer to every people group on this planet. I'm going to ask you in a minute, church, if you believe that. Because I'm, I'm going to challenge you in a minute. The way I hear many Christians talk today, I'm not sure we do. I'm not sure that we really understand that the gospel of Jesus is the answer to the ills of this world in any cultural setting you might find yourself in. So whether you're living in squalor in Tanzania or under persecution in China or in a messed up economy like Greece, I saw that firsthand, or the craziness of the Middle East or turbulent Russia, secular Europe, cold Iceland, the, the tribes of Amazon, or how about this one, the materialistic and increasingly decadent United States, whether you're living in any of these places, God's answer is the same. Hear the words of Revelation 14, 6, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, language and people. And here's my deal, folks. This has to change the way that we see the world around us. And if it doesn't, I love you to death, but it hasn't gotten through. And some of you wonder why I think that many Christians today might not get it. And here's where I'm going to step on some toes. I don't care. Bring the emails on. I'm ready for it. I've had two weeks of rest. <laughs> when I hear Christians today talk about immigration. Can I wade into this one right now? I'm not going to give you my view on it. You're not interested in that. Here's why. When I hear Christians talk about immigration, I hear those on the right and those on the left. I hear the compassionate view and the more hardline view and, and all of that. You know what I rarely hear, which like breaks my heart? I rarely hear anybody say, man, these borders are like crowded with people who, who came a long way and man, they're beat up and hurting. And I just hope that they find Jesus in the midst of their long journey. Amen. See, the problem is you read Fox News or listen to Fox News or CNN or wherever you get your news and all of a sudden you get fired up and you got your opinion. Before you know it, you don't give a hoot about whether or not the gospel has gone to them or not. And Revelation 14, 6 says, that should be your first and primary concern. Before you develop a view on immigration, my word, pray for those people and do something 
I read an article while I was away about how young people are flocking to the border, young Christians. Why? Because they want to give these folks the gospel. And they want to let them know whether you get in or not, or no matter what the United States does, man, there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. Those are people who understand Revelation 14.6. Or how about this one? How about the values war going on in America right now? Again, we, we watch Hollywood. I mean, I, I hate most of what Hollywood does. My wife and I sit there and watch TV at night and say, man, where are the good old days? Like, where's Gilligan's Island, right? I mean, you know, things like that. I mean, TV is just, I mean, it's so bad nowadays. And I can get such a bad attitude towards it, you know, and I'm like, people are going to hell, you know, and all this stuff. And, and before you know it, I'm not thinking, gee, I hope these people in Hollywood find Jesus. I hope, in fact, I'm gonna pray right now that God lavishes his love and grace and truth on them. Because what does Romans 2, 4 say? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. No, you see, I, I don't find myself praying that very often. I find myself getting in an angry, judgmental mode. And before you know it, here's the deal, gang. I'm pointing the finger back at me. I, I really don't believe Revelation 14, 6 at that time. I, I really don't see the world the way that God wants me to see the world. Remember what we talked about a few minutes ago. Before the judgments of Revelation 16, before those bowls of judgments are put on humanity, God says, I got a gospel. And it's gonna go out to the whole world. It needs to get out to the whole world because it's that gospel that is anyone's best chance of dealing with any judgment coming down the pike. And having said that, here's the point, gang. There's still a lot of people today who have yet to hear about this amazing gospel. In other words, there's a lot of room for the gospel to be proclaimed, as Revelation 14, 6 says, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. It's hard for some of us to see today because I've told you guys this a thousand times, but until you travel internationally like our video showed, you just don't see it. We really do live in a, in a wonderful, beautiful, I mean, in many ways, amazing country. And on a spiritual level, I know many of us bemoan what's happening right now, but I study this stuff all the time. It's my, my wheelhouse. Do you realize we're still the most churched planet or church country on planet Earth? I mean, right now, according to the Hartford Institute of Religion, the people that monitor this the most, Dale, you know about the Hartford Institute. According to them, there's 319,000 Protestant churches in America alone. Let that sink in a minute. 319,000 Protestant ones. There's an additional 28,000 Catholic churches and then others for a total of 350,000 churches in the United States right now. If you look at a map on, on how the gospel has saturated various cultures, we have some work to do here and we're losing some ground, I mean, what some would argue, but the reality is we're still pretty much all green when it comes to how missions experts look at America. But when you look at the rest of the world, watch this. When you look at the other side that Paul originally made that first step onto, it's a whole different story. I shared these stats with you about a, a year ago, but when you look at all the different people groups in the world, there's about 17,000 of them. So when Revelation 14:6 says every language, tribe, nation, right? How many of those are there? How many distinct people groups with their own language, culture, their own communities? There's about 17,000 of them in the world. Here's the deal. How many unreached groups are there that have no gospel or churches in them? About 7,000 which means that 41% of the 
of the world right now are in unreached people groups. And you wonder why the church harps about missions and global outreach and why we have weekends like this? Because Revelation 14, 6 says, no matter how you interpret the book of Revelation, it's all the same. We gotta care about the other side. Some people push back on this and say, well, I was talking about people groups. What about, you know, raw population? Well, I'm glad you asked. So total world population is about 7.6 billion people. The population in these unreached people groups is 3.13 billion. So it's about the same. 41% of people live in areas where they have never heard boo about Jesus Christ and his life-saving gospel. So maybe now you can see Revelation 14, 6 is so incredibly timely and relevant. Maybe now you can see why this really is paradigm shifting stuff for you and me. So in the few minutes we have remaining, I want to ask and answer one last question. And that is, what do we do with this? What should our response be to this? And to answer it, I want to do something kind of fun that will encourage you. I want to tell you what we are doing as a church. And then maybe you can decide how you want to get on board. So Northridge and Cactus, Chapel and Venue, how you guys can decide, how we can all decide to get on board. Uh, let me just share with you what our church is doing because our church cares deeply about the other side and global outreach. Uh, right now, we have over 50 supported missionaries as a church, over 50 that we support financially, pray for, interact with, and they're all over the world. They're in Central America, South America, Mexico. Uh, they're in Europe. They're in Asia. Uh, they're in Africa. Uh, they're, they're all over the place. They're in America here. Uh, we have 50 missionaries. We have two major projects in Tanzania, where, as you guys know, we're supporting over 800 children linked to 800 families in our church who are supporting them. And we provide education, food, water, for some of them housing. And these kids are in predominantly Muslim communities, 87% Muslim, but their Muslim parents love to send them to our Christian schools because they are top-notch schools and they don't mind them getting the gospel. It's, you can clap at that, it's amazing. <laughs> Further, we have hundreds of individuals that we're celebrating this weekend that go on short-term mission trips. Each year we have anywhere between 20 and 30 different mission trips where we send hundreds of people on them to get exposed to what missions is about. As you can imagine, all of this costs money. So our church spends annually anywhere between three and four million dollars on global outreach and missions. Uh, that's anywhere between 20 and 30 percent of our budget. It was funny when we did our Compelled by Grace uh, vision in which we spent about $20 million getting this campus up, <clears throat> up to shape and doing a lot of things here. Some people, you know, complained to me, well, we could give that money, you know, to missions and the poor. And I reminded them that the reason that we were spending money a few years ago on the Shea campus that would eventually affect Cactus and allow us to unite with Northridge is because a strong Scottsdale Bible church ensures strong international support, the other side for generations to come. And I just did the math this week. It's fascinating. In the last six years, <clears throat> since we've done Compelled by Grace, we have more than paid back that $20 million given to global missions over the last six years. I mean, that's what our church is about. In addition to that, we have tons of, yep, you can clap at that. Yeah, for those of you who don't like the clapping, I don't either, but we've got to let them get it out of them. So uh, we have tons of volunteers 
We have emails to missionaries, prayers, gifts, financial support. We host missionaries when they come home. You see, we take this, this proclamation to proclaim the eternal gospel or this call to proclaim the gospel very seriously here at our church. We've even developed values for how we want God to guide us in our missions program. Here they are, and this is for another sermon, but we wanna reach the unreached, that's Revelation 14, six. We wanna strengthen churches across the world, so establish churches and strengthen them so that we don't just give them fish, but teach them how to fish. And then we also wanna defend the vulnerable. So anytime we go into a new area, we're looking for ways that we can protect the weak and be about justice in a world of injustice. I think that's a well-rounded set of values. And so what can and should you do to get involved in all that's going on here at our church? Here's a good start. As you leave today, and at Cactus and at Northridge, it's the same. It's all the same. You're going to see six different tables set up in the open air at your particular campus. And these six tables, I promise you, have something for all of us. One of the tables will be about trips. So many of you need to consider going on a mission trip to open your eyes to the other side. And there's a table for that. There's a table called business as missions. So if you're a business person that wonders how you can combine the business stuff that you have as missions, there's a table for you. Another table is called global counseling. And so as you consider counseling and and helping people through that medium, we have a table for you. Uh, There's a table, this is my favorite one, called missionary prep. So for any of you who might feel called to missions, because we're praying about the next generation of missionaries as our church, there's a table for you. This one's self-explanatory, fifth table, college summer internship opportunities. So if you're not in college, forget about it. But if you're in college and you want a summer internship opportunity, we have that for you. And then for, for those of you who those five tables meant nothing, this one's for you, general global outreach information. So we have a table for you. Here's the only thing I ask you to consider today as we wrap this thing up. Here's my question for you. Do we care about those on the other side? As I sat there overlooking the historic city of Neapolis, where Kavala is right now, where Paul and his companions first stepped foot into Europe that would ensure that we get the gospel today, it hit me that they cared. That's the question I have for you. Do you care at all? Or are you just consumed in your self-satisfied North American Christianity life? See, I believe better for you. I believe better for me. God asks you to care. He asks you to embrace Revelation 14, 6. Search your heart and just ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do? I promise you, he'll give you an answer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these amazing string of 14, six passages, the one we parked in front of today, challenging us, encouraging us that there is a gospel and that this gospel of Jesus is the hope for everyone on planet earth. Some of us resist that, God, and yet today I hope we embrace that, that you love each and every person on this planet and that before judgment comes, man, you got a gospel for us. And Lord, as we've learned, it's our job to care about that to be willing to take some of those first steps into uncharted territory to get the gospel out there. So Lord, some of us can't go, but we can pray. Uh, Some of us can financially support. Some of us get involved in our missions this side of, uh, of the ocean. And then Lord, other of us, we can go. So Lord, speak to us each individually about what you would have us do. Mostly Lord, may we care about the other side because you've asked us to. 
and you're active there just as you are here. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen.